Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining in for this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. I go by Eeks or Aaron. I basically look if anybody's shouting in my direction. Um, hopefully things are okay in your world. <laughs> Man, I'm not good at introductions. Okay, that was a weak word, right? Let me infuse a little optimism in it. We don't want to just go with okay. I hope things are good in your world or swell. That's better, right? Stronger than okay. Way better than fine. Um, those are weak words. By the way, did you ever come across those people who like to remind you of the strength of the words you use? Uh, like one time a few years ago, I told a guy, I hate that about you. And he said, hate's a strong word. And I said, I know. That's why I used it. <laughs> that's a 10 pound word. That's a 50 pound word. Be careful of that one. That's a hundred pound word. Don't drop that on your toe. Uh, like, thanks, but no thanks, buddy. I don't need you to mansplain my adverbs. Uh, <clears throat> All right. Anyways, it's freezing here. Um, I don't know what the temperature is like there, but it's freezing. And so I need to finish this introduction and grab a sweater. But guys, today's topic is a really good one. Um, today I am chatting with Dr. Chris Murray about a paper recently published in The Lancet, August of 2022, so recent. It was called The Global Burden of Cancer Attributable to Risk Factors, 2010 through 2019, a systematic analysis for the Global Burden of Disease Study, 2019. So he is going to tell us more about the Global Burden of Disease Study and what that is and how they did it. He'll explain some of those terms, you know, you guys might see pop up online or in articles like the difference between incidence and prevalence, disability adjusted life years. And some of you guys might know what those things mean already, and good for you. Some don't. So we're just going to break it down for everyone. Uh, he'll talk about the risk factors they looked at, uh, which were divided into three groups, percentages of cancer deaths attributable to risk factors, the leading risk factors, high-income countries versus low-income countries, differences among behavioral risk factors versus environmental and occupational, and then from a public health perspective, so population level, right? What should be prioritized in terms of cancer prevention? Um, I'll include Dr. Murray's bio in the podcast description and on my blog, but cliff notes are that he is a physician, an economist, and the chair of health metrics sciences at the University of Washington and director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, he leads the Global Burden of Disease Collaboration, a network of over 7,000 scientists and decision makers from 156 countries, okay? So give me a second here, guys, and let's connect to him and hear what he has to say. Okay, guys, we are connecting with Dr. Christopher Murray. Thank you so much for joining in on this episode of Causes or Cures, and we're going to talk about uh, the article, The Global Burden of Cancer Attributable to Risk Factors, um, a Systematic Analysis for the Global Burden of Disease Study. But before we start there, I thought, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? 
Sure. Uh, I am the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is a group at the University of Washington uh, in the School of Medicine that we're about 500. And we uh, try to measure the main causes and trends of health around the world and what are the key determinants of health around the world. And so as part of that work, uh, we look at cancer uh, as a set of outcomes, and we look at risk factors for cancer. But we also do that for every main disease. Uh, we also project burden into the future. So we think of this of the, the, the global burden of disease that we are the sort of coordinating center for, because it's a large global collaboration, um, as a global public good that you know everybody can benefit from. And we also think about the sort of future scenarios of where how health might evolve under different policy regimes as another global public good to help guide people make better choices, uh, whether they're in government or in fact individuals uh, as well. Okay, thank you. And so your paper is based off of the global burden of diseases 2019. Um, and for those who may not know, and I wasn't sure how long or how many years this came out or a similar study, was it every year uh, starting when? But can you tell us a little more about that? Sure. The Global Burden of Disease study uh, started or I started it uh, with Alan Lopez in 1991. So we're after over 30 years into the effort. Uh, in fact, there is a series of papers, including one on the sort of 30 years of the GBD that came out in the journal Nature Medicine last week, for those who want to know more about the history. Uh, it started actually, strangely, as an initiative of the World Bank, and was, then became a joint effort of the World Bank and the World Health Organization to fill a big gap. Namely, there was no sort of uh, comprehensive, comparable view of health around the world using standardized methods. And it's just continuously grown over the 30 years to be now this uh, collaboration of eight and a half thousand people. The goal is to produce uh, revisions every year of the GBD, uh, but we sort of got uh, derailed a little bit by COVID. We're trying to understand health around the world in post during COVID and post COVID. It takes a lot of detail on the sort of complex impacts of COVID on, on different other diseases. So our next installment after the GBD 2019 is GBD 2021 should be coming out either later this year or early next year. Okay. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it looks like 204 countries and territories were included around that. So, you know, the scope is incredibly detailed. So we cover uh, yeah. a time series from 1990 to present for 204 countries and territories. Um, and we then cover a comprehensive list of diseases over 350 uh, and injuries and about 88 risk factors uh, as well. And we also have a whole series of metrics about health systems like access to healthcare and universal health coverage that comes out of this whole effort at harmonizing, standardizing uh, information around health and health systems. So, I know, and there was a big section on this in your paper and um, I'm, I'm gonna summarize it uh, pretty uh, drastically here, but to, to figure out, um, the, can the cancer data that you gathered, you plugged it into a, a model, several models. Um, 
to estimate mortality, but also the non-fatal consequences of cancer. Is that, I mean, can you just go into a little detail about how you estimated the burden of cancer? Sure. So uh, many models. So, uh, you know, let's start with the sort of universe of data that we can see. So uh, as, you know, fortunately, many countries, certainly not all low income, but many most high income, many middle income countries have population based cancer registries that tell us about the incidence of cancer by site. Uh, that data, by the nature of cancer registry, is quite delayed. So we, we only find out about cancer incidence six or seven years after the fact, given the way those systems work. So there's a, there's a longer lag in cancer data than there is in many other fields uh, of, of sort of the, the sort of global epidemiology that we do. We, in addition, and it's more timely than the cancer registries, we get cause of death data or vital statistics from uh, where we get death certificates from, you know, slightly below half of all deaths in the world. And so that's another rich source of information on cancer trends on the death side. And then there are other studies that come into play in addition uh, that are uh, uh, relate to certain outcomes from cancer. So for example, what fraction of people who've had surgery for a cancer end up with some sort of loss of function. You know, they, they might have a colostomy uh, as an example. And so we use smaller scale, you know, sometimes, you know, local studies that tell you about that information. We bring that all together and we make a model on death by from each cancer, a statistical model for each country over time by age and by sex. And then we have another model on incidence and we relate the two. Uh, we also then try to model out these, you know, uh, outcomes that relate to mastectomy or to, you know, resection of a piece of the colon, et cetera. And so there's a series of a, a shorter list of, of things that affect people's functioning that we also try to model out. And we run all these models. We come up with a comprehensive view for each country by age and by sex and over time of what's happening to incidence and death for each cancer. Okay. And just for people who get inc incidence and prevalence, incidence, you mean the new, new cases of cancer? Um, yes. So we... We also have to make prevalence uh, for cancer. Most of the interest is on the incidence numbers, incidence. which is new cases right. in a year. Prevalence is the number of people in the population suffering from a condition. And in the case of cancer, it's a little bit of a of a convention. Normally, you're in that prevalence category if you are within five years of having had your cancer. Okay. And if you make it past five years, uh, few exceptions, you you tend to not be counted as a prevalent case anymore. Got you. Um, and I know uh, I work in public health and we always see disability adjusted life years or D-A-L-Y-S as an acronym and then years of life loss, Y-L-L -L, and years of life with disability or Y-L-D. But people who see those terms maybe in like an article or and, and it comes up in your study as well. I thought, could you just briefly tell us what those are and how those two or and how those three are related to, to each other? Sure. So. 30 years back ago, when I started this work, uh, we very much wanted to have a uh, parity between things that kill you and things that you know redu reduce your ability to function. And so that we built up from a, a, a very old uh, literature, but it's just never been applied, of sort of comprehensive measures of loss of health. And thus, 
the idea that, you know, the thing you want to count is years of healthy life lost. And we just happened to call that when we started the study DALIs or disability adjusted life years. And that's a arcane detail around how WHO classified things back in the 1990s. But the idea is that we want to measure, you know, years of healthy life lost. There are two parts to that. There's the years you lose by dying prematurely. And then there's the all the illnesses that you may have, and then the loss of health associated with those illnesses. And so the way, and that's the construct of wild ease or years live with disability. And the way we actually go about getting the, the weights that say, uh, if you are have major depression, how much loss of health does that represent um, compared to a year of healthy life is we ask the public. We run surveys now in many countries more than half a million respondents around the world, um, asking comparisons of different states of health and which one is a, represents more or less health. And we, from that, we derive this scale that allows us to convert disease prevalence uh, into loss of health. Put the two together, and that's the apex measure DALIs. We also take all of the same information and turn it into a positive measure called healthy life expectancy. But it's essentially right. a different way of rolling the, the same information up into a different indicator. Right. No, thank you. Thanks. Um, okay, so let's get into the risk factors. Uh, you divided them into three groups in the study, environmental and occupational, behavioral and metabolic. Um, and did you use a six-step risk assessment framework to link the specific cancer burden to each risk factor, I, I was curious, is that there's like a six steps to do that? Or there is. So we've talked okay. so far about how you how you know about cancer in the world, right? Yes. Cancer registries, cause of death data, some hospital data. On the risk factor side, it's a it's its own world of analysis. So there are three parts to the, the risk factor side. One part is exposure to the risk factor. So think smoking. We look at thousands of surveys um, that measure smoking prevalence, and you know they differ on which definition of smoking. You know, do you have to smoke above a certain number of cigarettes per day to count as a smoker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And we try to clean all that up, and we come up with a measure by age and by sex and by year of how much smoking there is. So that's the exposure part. We do that for body mass index, for alcohol, and on down the whole list. Uh, then there is the second part of the story, which is the, the risk function. So we want to know for a given level of exposure, how, in, how much is the increase in your risk of a particular cancer? So go back to smoking. If you have five pack years of smoking, what's your increase in lung cancer? You know, what's the relative risk of lung cancer? It's very large, but you know, we quantify that and we get this risk function by doing a systematic review of all the published studies and then fitting a, uh, a curve to all those studies. In fact, in the case of tobacco, last week in Nature Medicine, we published an updated systematic review and risk function analysis for all the outcomes related to tobacco and you know, covering thousands of articles. And you can see, and there's a now an online tool where you can just visualize what that risk function looks like. The third part of the story is what's the optimal level of the risk uh, exposure? What's the bottom of the risk curve? And we call that the uh, jargony term TMREL, the theoretical minimum risk exposure level. 
And so then we take all those bits, the exposure, the risk function, and what's the optimal and say, what would lung cancer or breast cancer or any of the cancers that we're looking at look like if everybody had been at the best level of that risk, zero in the case of smoking, uh, not zero in the case of um, some other uh, exposures, that and how would that make the level of cancer go down? And that's the attributable burden. Okay, great. And I want to, you know, lots of times people will say, well, if I exercise, will I counter my risk? If I start eating healthy, will I counter my risk? Uh, did you also look at mediation factors as part of this? We do. We have a thing uh, called where we try to uh, look at the evidence, albeit it's actually quite hard to do that well, uh, which risks operate through other risks. So for example, high body mass index, overweight and obesity, uh, part of that effect on cancer is mediated through uh, not in the case of cancer, but uh, is mediated through LDL cholesterol. If we're talking about heart disease outcomes, it would be some of it would be mediated through blood pressure, uh, some of it mediated through blood sugar. And so we actually have a matrix of how all these risk factors work through each other. And we use that to avoid double counting in a sense, and also to answer questions that people might have about you know, how does changing one risk alter my outcomes uh, if I have in the presence of other risks? So that, you know, this, these risk functions and the mediation can be used to sort of give an individual an idea of their risk for particular cancers or, or for other outcomes as well. But at the population level, we do take into account the mediation between them. And what about the synergy? I, uh, you know, like two risk factors are present versus two other risk factors. I mean, I know that's, I mean, just thinking about it, it sounds very hard to do, but I was just curious what your thoughts were on that or if you guys look at that at all. We do, it, it, and I'll, I'll confess that we end up uh, taking a very simple approach, which is to assume that each risk factor, other than mediating through each other, which we do take into account, but after above and beyond that, they're multiplicative. So if one, risk, smoking increases your risk of a cancer by 50%, and then alcohol increases it by another 50%, then we're going to say it's one and a half times one and a half. And that, that gives us our, our result. Um, so what did you find in terms of the total number of cancer deaths globally attributable to all estimated risk factors? Uh, to all risk, all, all cancer deaths or... Total number of cancer deaths. Oh, yeah. cancer deaths. That's about four and a half million, 4.45 million uh, of cancer deaths globally in 2019 uh, attributable to the risk factors that we look at. So a huge number globally. And what is that? Uh, do you know what that is in a, as a percentage? Of all deaths? Uh, the world has about 58 million deaths, so it is uh, less than 10%. So okay. uh, 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 that's all deaths, not just cancer deaths. And it so, was higher in males than females? Is that So in men, the number of deaths ends up being about 2.9 million for uh, cancer deaths attributable okay. to risk factors. And in women, it's about 1.6 million deaths. So 
And, you know, a lot of that has to do with, with differential exposure to tobacco in men. Mm, okay. And then for the um, disability or, or years lost, um, it was about the, the same for... For for the years of healthy life lost or DALIs as as we uh, call them, you know we have about a hundred and five million DALIs lost for men and women combined, and then the split across males and females for that, if I am going to remember, is about proportionate to the split we saw more in men than in women uh, we saw for deaths. Okay, and what were can you talk a little bit about the leading risk factors and then maybe break it down by um, sex? Sure. In men, you know, overwhelmingly it's tobacco. Uh, that That is probably just under half of all risk attributable cancer um, uh, dallies. And then next comes alcohol. Then we have a grouping of all diet together because we actually look in diet in lots of detail, uh, you know, red meat, uh, vegetable intakes, you know, some are protective, some are harmful, uh, salt, et cetera. And uh, the aggregation of all of those com combined comes in number three, followed by air pollution, and then high body mass index, uh, making out the top five. And in women, it's still tobacco, but much smaller, unsafe sex as a determinant of cervical cancer. Uh, and then diet, high body mass index, and then high blood blood sugar makes out number five in, in women. And I, is the high BMI, is that a metabolic risk factor or was that behavior? Yeah, we count BMI because it's a measure of, you know, uh, it's a metabolic measure in the sense that it's a reflection of multiple things, uh, you know, how yeah. much energy in, how much energy out. Okay. So it's in the, it's in the metabolic count the high BMI. Okay. Okay. But then like the biggest risk factors would be considered behavioral. As a grouping. As a group, as a group. Yeah. As a grouping, it turns out the behavioral was the, is the largest because that includes smoking, you know, tobacco. Right, right, right. Sure. And then that, that kind of leads in. So the leading cancer deaths for uh, men and women were tracheal bronchus um, or in lungs, which kind of, I guess, yeah, I mean, the, the effect of tobacco, even though we've had progress globally on tobacco, is just huge uh, and, and very marked for uh, tracheal bronchus and lung cancer. But the effect of tobacco on other cancer sites is also pretty, pretty impressive as well. I wanted to, um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of discussion about how low income countries are adopting more of a Western lifestyle. Um, but then I think in your paper, you mentioned that the largest increase was seen in high income countries or, um, high income countries are more worried about, uh, um, you know, cancers and younger people happening. Um, so what did you see in terms of differences between low income countries and high income countries in your study? So in general, uh, risk attributable cancer is more common in, in the more developed countries than in less developed countries. And that has many things behind it. You know, it has the age structure of the population. 
cancer tends to occur in older age groups. Smoking rates historically have been much higher in the high income countries, uh, even though they've been coming down. So we have this sort of backlog of smoking. True for, for the upper middle income countries as well. So that, those factors make cancer and risk attributable to cancer more common. If you look at the time trends, however, uh, you know, there we are seeing sort of some of the middle development category countries where the rates are going up the fastest because they're at that point in the epidemiological transition where they haven't yet had the, the control of tobacco and declining rates, but they are quite far along in having plenty of people that are at in the age groups that are at risk for cancer. And could, could you just comment on air pollution again? I was just curious about that one. So air pollution is a quite substantial risk factor. Uh, it is one of those risk factors um, that is actually, at the, even at the global level, is not getting better. It's actually getting worse. Most of that is air pollution exposure in middle-income countries where they're going through industrialization. These are places like China or India, uh, you know, where really high levels of ambient air pollution and that no no sign yet that regulation has has come in to bring that level of exposure down. Uh, so yes, it's a underappreciated cause of cancer, and one for which, unlike tobacco, where there is slow progress globally, uh, we're still in that phase where it's it's sort of getting worse. <laughs> and from the study, it looked like the leading risks in 2010 were the same as. In 2019, um, but the greatest increase was in the metabolic risk factors. Yeah, uh, you know, if, if you step out for a sec and look at which risk factors globally are getting worse, mm -hmm. you know, ambient air pollution is one of them. But the one that is is overwhelmingly getting worse is high body mass index, overweight, and obesity, where you know. There is no country in the world where uh, overweight and obesity is going down. And there are some countries where it's been sort of level, but the vast majority of countries, low, middle, high income, uh, overweight and obesity is rising. So it's a true global expansion of that risk. And so the burden attributable to metabolic risk is being driven by Mostly that, mostly the rise in obesity and overweight, and that because it's so global, uh, it really starts to, you know, uh, have, have an impact. And uh, when you talk about the percentages of the, these types of cancers that are um, attributed to risk factors, it's still not necessarily greater than 50%, is it? In most no. Of them? No, so what does that, what does that tell us? There's just a, a lot we don't know, or... There's a lot we don't know. Uh, there are, which not in this study, uh, you know, there's a bunch of cancers that are, we cover HPV infection, but there are other infectious agents that may be contributing to some cancers. Uh, probably not huge amounts, but still some. And there are likely other exposures that we don't know about or we haven't fully characterized. And then there is just, a lot of you know uh, bad luck in in terms of uh, who gets a cancer. So we don't ever think we would explain 
you know, 100% of cancer through that, uh, because there's just this sort of chance mutation aspect to ha having some cancers. Although I suspect as we get more and more understanding of different types of mutations, the role of different perhaps, you know, uh, mechanisms that lead to those mutations, we, we may increase the amount that's explainable by risk factors. Yes, uh, you know, a lot of people who are wellness coaches or whatnot, or the, I'm sure you've seen this trend, uh, this word like toxin-free, or, the, you know, I want to live a toxin-free lifestyle. And I'm like, you can't, because as you said, there's probably so many exposures that we don't even know about or that we're being exposed to. Um, and just the, the stress of trying to avoid that is probably ultimately more toxic, I would think. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you do what you can, but you do what you can. <laughs> and, you know, to help people navigate this, we uh, have started an initiative, which the first salvo was last week, uh, of providing a star rating from one to five stars on how compelling is the evidence between a risk exposure and a particular outcome. Uh, and, you know, uh, tobacco and lung cancer, five stars, uh, overwhelming, powerful evidence. Uh, you know, high blood pressure and heart disease, same thing. But there are a lot of uh, exposures, you know, a lot on the diet side, particularly, where the evidence is there, but it's pretty weak. Or put another way, uh, maybe a big study will come out tomorrow or next year or in two years that will substantially change our understanding. But it's super hard for the public or the consumer to navigate what to do because the media tend to cover whatever the latest study is and not the body of evidence that's out there. And so we've tried to make this available uh, and we will go through our 400 or so risk outcome pairs and, and star rate them over time. Now, it, the public can access that? Yeah, it's a tool now on our website at healthdata.org. Healthdata.org. Okay. Yeah, and it, you know, these star ratings uh, for risk outcome pairs. And we have about 50 or 60 currently, and we will have a couple hundred by the end of the year or early next year. Uh, and eventually, as people propose or associations, we will try to do this sort of very careful systematic assessment, as well as, you know, how convincing is the evidence. Uh, and, you know, it leads the it may not make everybody feel great because there's an awful lot of risk factors where the evidence is sort of weak. So if you want to be really risk averse, you probably want to act on that until you get better evidence, but you shouldn't be surprised if our understanding changes over time. Right. There's a level of uncertainty there. Um, my, I'm going to check it out. I think that's awesome though. That's cool. I, I'll check it out. Um, healthdata.org. Um, my final question, you know, uh, you talk about different levels of prevention um, in terms of recommendations for, you know, from a public health perspective, population level, or even an individual level. Um, what can people do or what should we do? What should we be investing in to lower our risk? You know, for cancer, uh, don't smoke. <laughs> it's, that's a really big factor. Uh, alcohol is definitely a contributor to cancer. Trickier part on alcohol is that if you're over 50, there's actually quite a considerable benefit to, to modest alcohol use for heart disease, even if it increases your risk of cancer. So, you know, you're, you're into this sort of balancing, diff, you know, pros and cons. 
for diet, there's you know some very clear uh, positive aspects to diet that are protective. Sometimes the evidence is more compelling than others, but you know uh, fruit and vegetable consumption very much so. Uh, for for diet, you know, reducing um, red meat consumption looks, although the evidence is super strong, it's it, it's sort of uh, convincing. And then there are other things like fiber, very convincing for things like colon cancer. So there's a bunch of dietary uh, actions that individuals can manage on their their own for um, obesity, which and an overweight which is growing in importance um, and is very important for some cancers and certainly for diabetes. Uh, you know, that's another thing that people should really try to find a strategy either through what they consume or through physical activity, which also has its own independent benefits. Um, so there's lots of these risk factors are individuals can do something about some like ambient air pollution, you can't really do much as an individual. You you have to count on the government to regulate it and and try to reduce it. But many of them, you know, are within your somewhat within your sphere of control. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's a very interesting study, um, and I always like to end with like giving people things that they can do uh, to hopefully lower their risk and um, hopefully we'll invest more in prevention. I guess as a as a country. And in these other countries, let's, let's hope there's a let's lot hope. of scope to do good uh, and yeah. a lot of opportunity. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <clears throat> okay, gang, friends, enemies, frenemies. A download is a download. So thanks for listening, whoever you are. Uh, seriously, I hope you guys got something out of that. Please stick around, subscribe, share, write a review. Hopefully the background noise was okay. Um, you can reach me if you're interested at Blooming Hellness. Wow, Freudian slip there. Bloomingwellness.com, but now that I think about it, Blooming Hellness might be an interesting endeavor to pursue. Uh, blooming Wellness by day and Blooming Hellness by night. I'll have to see if it's available on GoDaddy. But I digress, and now I'm back on track. So let's end this thing with a quote, right? This quote has nothing to do with the content of this podcast. This is just a tradition that I started. Um, and, you know, I decided to go with a Veterans Day theme since I was editing this podcast on Veterans Day. Of course, every day should be Veterans Day. We should be thinking of our veterans, um, you know, because they have a lot of trouble <laughs> you know, getting out of combat or getting out of active duty service and then trying to come back to the civilian world. Uh, but there we are. And especially in the U.S. because so few, uh, it's, it's, I think uh, the number of people who serve is so small, such a small percentage in comparison of our population. So this is actually two segments from the book, The Man Who Saved the Union, Ulysses Grant in War and Peace. He is a uh, an esteemed West Point graduate. Um, it's my alma mater, West Point. Uh, there's actually um, Grant Hall at West Point serves a lot of uh, sandwiches and stuff. And the cadets like to hang out there. Anyhow, <clears throat> the brief segments describe two great American generals, 
both West Point graduates actually, when they entered the civilian world after fighting in the Mexican War and before the Civil War happened. And now we always hear how these two were great leaders and generals, and they were. But we don't often hear about how much they struggled before the Civil War, called them back, and gave them a purpose. I mean, we certainly didn't hear about it at West Point when they were teaching us military art. These guys are always like, great, no matter what. Um, no problems. No mental demons. <laughs> okay, so this is after Sherman tried to be a banker and his bank failed. Sherman traveled to St. Louis to settle accounts with his backers. Then he encountered Grant, and the two compared stories of bad luck since leaving the army. They spoke of other comrades who had done no better and wondered what would become of them all. West Point and the regular army aren't good schools for farmers, bankers, merchants, and mechanics, Sherman mused. And then there is this quote from Louisa Boggs. She was the wife of Harry Boggs, and Harry and Grant went into the real estate business together after Grant got out of the Mexican War. Louisa Boggs considered Grant a decent soul who was simply out of his element in civilian life. We thought of him a man of ability, but in the wrong place. His mind was not on such things as selling real estate. He did clerical work and wrote a good clear hand, but wasn't of much use. He hadn't the push of a businessman. His intentions were good, but he hadn't the faculty of keeping affairs in order. I didn't think he had any ambition further than to educate and care for his family. He seemed to me to be much depressed. Yes, he was a sad man. I never heard him laugh out loud. He would smile, and he was not a gloomy man, but he was a sad man. So, of course, you guys hopefully know Grant went on to be a Civil War hero, general and president of the United States. So, something to consider as we ponder what makes someone manifest into greatness. Okay, guys, I'll see you here next time. Have a good day. Bye.